the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of Ivy and Genting Casinos. And the citation for this case is 2017 UKSC 67. And by looking at this case, we're finishing the year with arguably its biggest and most important case. Biggest because it involves one of the world's most famous poker players, Phil Ivey, winning £7.7 million from one of London's most iconic casinos. Important because it changes the legal definition of dishonesty in a radical way that affects both criminal and civil law. Phil Ivey has won 10 World Series of Poker bracelets and is known as the Tiger Woods of Poker. However, this case is not about poker, but a different card game called Punto Banco, the most common variation of Baccarat in the world. The rules can get a little complex, but essentially two cards are drawn for the player, and two cards are drawn for the banker. A person like Ivy can then bet on which hand will win, the players or the bankers, or they can bet on the tie. The focus is on the unit values of the cards, so if a 6 and a 7 are drawn, the total might be 13, but the focus on the unit value means that the Baccarat score is 3. The highest score then is 9, as one more takes the hand to 10 where the unit value is 0. Aces are worth 1, and face cards, Jack, Queens, Kings, are worth 0. If the player's initial total is between 0 and 5, he draws a third card to supplement his hand. The banker then either draws or stands pat himself, according to certain rules which we don't need to go into here. After all the players completed, the hand closest to 9 wins, and in a tie, the bets are generally carried through to the next round. Mathematically, all this means that there is very little skill involved, and is not far off betting on the toss of a coin. That is, unless you are using an advantage play, like Phil Ivey and his accomplice Kelly Sun did, when they walked into Crockford's Casino in the summer of 2012. When you are spending a lot of money and have a high profile, you can make certain requests of the casino as to what games you play and how you play them. The first request related to the playing cards themselves. Ivy and Son wanted cards that were machine cut. In other words, the pattern on the back of the cards went right up to the edge. This meant that the cards are slightly asymmetrical, Not enough for a regular person to notice, but enough of a difference for a professional gambler to pick up on and use to distinguish cards. The second request was more unusual, and that was for an Asian dealer. This was mainly for the benefit of Kelly Sun, as she is more familiar with speaking in her native tongue of Cantonese. But there were also a couple of specific advantages associated with this arrangement. Firstly, these casinos are mic'd up, so speaking in Cantonese negates a lot of the advantage the casino might have on being able to listen in. Secondly, Sun can start talking to the dealer about her belief in luck and what things can be done to improve luck. Of course, she doesn't really believe in luck, but it is a good enough excuse to ask the dealer to turn certain lucky cards the other way around. On the surface, this makes no difference whatsoever because, as everyone knows, playing cards are symmetrical. But on the back of the cards, which we know are not symmetrical, this creates an important distinction that allows the lucky cards to be identified without seeing them. This is called edge sorting and gives an advantage to the player of around 6.5%. To put this in context, card counting can give an advantage of about 1%, so over the course of a couple of days in London, 
6.5% is absolutely massive. Combine this with increasingly large bets and Ivy and Sun were on to make a killing. At 6pm on the second day, a suspicious floor manager insisted that the cards be changed and shortly afterwards the pair walked out of the casino with a receipt for their winnings, £7.7 .7 million. The problems began when Crockford's refused to pay out and so Ivy commenced the legal case that we have before us today. In his testimony before the court, Ivy said he didn't cheat but rather the casino was stupid enough to meet all of his requests. In other words, the casino saw someone famous who would spend a lot of money, and they got greedy. They were too accommodating because all they were thinking about was the profit to be made. The High Court, however, did not agree and held that Ivy and Son had cheated. The finding was upheld by the Court of Appeal, and so Ivy appealed to the Supreme Court. The justices began by considering those situations where two parties engage in a contract related to gambling. It was agreed that in such contracts there is an implied term that neither party will cheat. But what is the definition of cheating? While giving a universal definition would be difficult, if not impossible, the justices did attempt to describe the essential features, and the quote from the case is, quote, a deliberate and not an accidental act designed to gain an advantage in the play which is objectively improper given the nature, parameters and rules formal or informal, of the game under examination, end quote. With this in mind, and taking into account the fact that Baccarat is a game of pure chance, the fact that steps were taken on his part to fix and organise the deck of cards is enough to constitute cheating. That should have been the end of the case, but the Supreme Court then moved on to talking about dishonesty, even though it's not clear that this is an element of cheating for the purposes of the law. The test for dishonesty in criminal law is called the Gauche test and comes from the case of the Crown against Gauche, 1982. It is a two-part test where the first question is whether the conduct would be considered dishonest by the reasonable, ordinary person. If so, then the second question is whether the defendant understood that his behaviour was dishonest in the eyes of ordinary people. Only if both questions are answered in the affirmative can a person be considered dishonest? The Supreme Court decided that they did not like this and in particular took issue with the second, subjective element of the test. The reasoning behind this is that the further a defendant's own standards fall behind those of society, the less likely they are to be held criminally liable for their actions. It follows that not abiding by society's standards for honesty should not be an excuse in the context of criminal law. In fact, the lead judgment by Lord Hughes states that the purpose of criminal law is, quote, to set the standards of behaviour which are acceptable, end quote. Such a change to the test for dishonesty would reflect the test in civil law, and the justices submit that this is appropriate as there should not be a difference between the two. This would not entirely remove subjectivity from the equation, as part of establishing the facts of any case is to understand the defendant's knowledge or belief as to the facts. Only then would the objective standard be applied accordingly. In the end, the decision in this case leaves a lot of questions, many of which are difficult to reconcile with the case or the law as it stands. First of all, let's get to the facts of the case and the idea that Ivy and Son cheated. Everyone will have their own view on this, and I would love to hear your thoughts, but for me this simply isn't cheating. Imagine that you are playing a game of tennis with a friend. 
You are a better tennis player than your friends, so when they ask to play with tram lines, you let them do so. Then they ask to play on grass instead of clay, and you agree to that as well. And if they decide to bring 20 fans along to cheer them on, you can't really complain about that either. If your friend then goes on to beat you, it hardly seems fair that they are accused of cheating, as, after all, you are still playing the game of tennis, just under different conditions. The same principle can be applied here. Ivy and Sun are still playing Baccarat, and in fact were playing a form of Baccarat where they didn't even touch the cards themselves. Certainly they requested that the game be played under different conditions, but the casino acceded to these requests. As I said, this is for you to make up your own mind about, but I do have one more thought on this before we move on. Baccarat at Crockford's is played with a house edge of over 1% whether the player wins or not. This means that any ordinary gambler may win in the short term, but played over a long enough period of time, they are at a distinct mathematical disadvantage. To put it another way, the house always wins is not just a saying, but a fact of life in any casino. If that is the case then, does that not also fit in with the definition of cheating? that the Supreme Court itself has supplied. Moving on to the legal questions now, however, there is perhaps a surprising legal question that we need to ask, and that is how seriously we should actually take this decision by the court. In the first instance, the decision is about dishonesty, but the justices themselves admit that dishonesty does not necessarily form a part of cheating. Perhaps this is only a small leap to be made, but even if we concede this point, Remember that this is a civil case brought by Ivy, and yet the Supreme Court take this as an opportunity to discuss accusations of dishonesty against a defendant in a criminal trial. Presented with these two distinct legal scenarios, is it not the case that this part of the judgment should only be considered as obiter? In other words, does this in fact form a binding precedent on lower criminal courts? Certainly most trial judges will follow this lead, but they would probably be justified if they chose to direct the jury along the lines of the traditional gauche test, based on the distinctions already discussed. If such a case got appealed to the Supreme Court, then perhaps the justices would choose to set a more binding precedent, but it is not impossible that a different set of judges would instead choose to affirm gauche. The legal position after this case is difficult to pin down with 100% accuracy. The follow-up question is to ask whether the decision to overturn Gauche was actually correct. In order to do this, we need to think about the original justifications for including a subjective second leg to the test. The idea stems from the need to establish the mens rea, or guilty mind, of the defendant. Take the classic example of a tourist who comes from a country where travelling on public transport is free. They come to the UK and ride on the bus but do not pay. By purely objective standards, this person is guilty, but with the subjective element of the test included, this person would clearly be innocent as they did not understand that their behaviour was dishonest in the eyes of ordinary UK residents. The Supreme Court comes at this directly and argues that in fact under the objective test alone, such a person would not be guilty. The reason is that as part of the objective test, we have to ask what the defendant knew about the context of the criminal activity they were engaged in. To quote from the case itself, quote, What is objectively judged is the standard of behaviour given any known actual state of mind of the actor as to the facts. End quote. 
This leads us viewing the case to question whether the judges have actually rewritten the Gauche test, or whether this is more of a reformulation. A reformulation is not nearly as dramatic a change, and for those listening with a legal mind this might actually make a lot of sense. But it is not difficult to see how this might be difficult for a jury to get their heads around. If not worded correctly, it might be confusing to try and apply what seems to be simultaneously an objective and subjective test. I'm not against the reformulation per se, as it does make it harder for criminals who do act dishonestly to get away with their actions, based on their own poor moral standards. But the justices should have had more consideration as to the practical effect on future jury trials. How will a jury react? when facing a defendant who is accused of dishonesty, but to their own mind acted in a genuine and even honest fashion. Well, thank you very much for tuning into another episode of the UK Law Weekly podcast. Thanks as ever to bensound.com who provide the theme music. And most importantly of all, thank you to everyone who has been listening to the podcast throughout 2017. It's been really great doing the podcast and engaging with listeners, whether that's through iTunes reviews or on the YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Marcus Cleaver. I look forward to coming at you again in the new year with more cases. Probably going to take a couple of weeks break for the new year, but we'll be back in January. So I hope you have a very good Christmas and also a happy new year as well. And I will speak again to you soon. Bye!